0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. The most dangerous woman in America. That's what J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI, labelled Bernadine Dawn, putting her on the US government's 10 most wanted list. Bernadine was a leader of the Weather Underground a left-wing radical group whose members were frustrated by the kind of political protests that held sway in the 1960s, the sit-ins and street marches. In 1969, the Weathermen decided that the only way to end America's involvement in the Vietnam War and to liberate black Americans from state oppression and police brutality was to take up arms. And so they declared war on the United States of America. The weathermen, later morphing into the weather underground, carried out bombings across the country, attacking police headquarters, army bases, courthouses and banks, often under the direction of Bernadine Dorn. While on the run from the FBI, Bernadine and her fellow weather underground leader, Bill Ayers, had a baby boy, Zaid. And Zaid ayers has now chronicled his remarkable childhood on the run with his revolutionary parents in a new podcast called Mother Country Radicals. Hi, Zaid.
1: Hi, Sarah. Nice to be here.
0: What did being on the run from the FBI mean to you as a little kid? How did you understand what was going on?
1: Yeah, well, it took a while to understand and I had to piece it together as I went. Um, When I was very young, you know, my parents never really hid anything from us. They never lied to us about what was going on. I knew from when I was three or four years old that the FBI was chasing us. But I think I knew the way any kid knows anything. I didn't know what the FBI meant, what those letters stood for. It just felt like kind of an abstract fear in my life that, that people were chasing us. I knew we used fake names outside of the house and um, I knew we were on the run, but it took me a while to understand what it all meant.
0: What kind of analogies did your parents use to try to explain it to you as a little kid?
1: Yeah, well, when I was little, they broke it down. You know, they used children's stories. I mean, we talked a lot about Robin Hood, and how he was, you know, an outlaw, but he stole from the rich and gave to the poor. And that that was a worthwhile thing. We talked uh, about Luke Skywalker. This was the late 70s and early 80s. So we talked about, you know, the Rebel Alliance fighting against an evil empire. So yeah, they tried to use stories that I liked, stories that I knew, to explain to me how sometimes people could be fighting against their own government.
0: So rather than uh, feeling on edge or or a fear, was it kind of exciting as a kid?
1: It was exciting sometimes, and and it was um, it was scary sometimes. But I would say mostly it felt pretty normal. I mean, this is going to sound weird, but most of the kids I knew growing up, their parents were also on the run or were in prison. Uh, you know they were the children of other revolutionaries, and so, in my little world, it felt pretty normal to be fugitives, to be radicals, to be revolutionaries and so i th- I thought i mean, yeah, there were times that it was felt exciting. I knew we were moving you know from California to New York because we were running away, and that could sometimes feel exciting on a road trip, but for the most part, it felt pretty normal. I just thought my parents I knew they cared about me I knew they were doing their best. And it took me a lot longer until I was older to kind of look back and think how strange that all really was.
0: What did your dad teach you, Zaid, about recognizing undercover police and FBI agents? Yeah,
1: Yeah, well, this was one of the lessons I got growing up was, you know, he would sit me down and point out to me, you know, on, on the streets of New York. We lived in Harlem at the time. And he would show me, you know, that car has a really fancy radio antenna but really cheap hubcaps and a cheap, you know, chrome strip along the side. And that probably means that those are undercover police because they invest in radios, but they cut corners on decorations. And so I learned those kind of things very early, or I knew that certain kinds of undercover cops had a certain kind of standard issue shoe in New York, a leather shoe that he taught me to recognize. So yeah, weird childhood lessons, but I do remember very vividly being taught how to recognize police, and if I saw them, that I was supposed to tell my dad right away.
0: Tell me more about the place you you lived in Harlem. What kind of home did your family have there?
1: When I was a kid, we moved around all the time, and it was usually places we could pay for in cash, um, didn't require ID or any kind of security check. The the first place I remember living was a fifth floor walk up in Harlem, kind of a tenement apartment, very small. Lived there with my parents and my baby brother. Was one room, a bathroom behind a curtain and a kitchenette and a living space where we all slept together. So it was more of a a safe house or a hideout than a real home.
0: Your parents were living this way, were living underground because of their leadership of the Weather Underground or the Weathermen, as they were first called. What was
1: this organization's
0: aid? What did the Weathermen want?
1: It's it's complicated to talk about, but the simplest way to think of it is they wanted to overthrow the American government. They were they considered themselves revolutionaries. They My, my mom declared war on the United States government at a certain point. The Weathermen were a group that came out of uh, the anti-war movement in America. My mom was the leader of the biggest anti-war students organization in the country called SDS, or Students for a Democratic Society. And then when that organization split in half, it was my mom who led the most radical faction of protesters who were saying basically, it's not enough to be out on the streets protesting against the war. We have to join radical groups like the Black Panthers and fight against the US government to end the oppression that, that we're seeing.
0: Where did the name come from?
1: <laughs> yeah, they, they took the name from a line uh, from a Bob Dylan song uh, called Subterranean Homesick Blues. And the line goes, uh, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. And it was their way of saying you know, look around and you can see what's coming. You can see the storms on the horizon. You don't need us to tell you that the world is changing. Just, you know, use your own eyes.
0: This declaration of war that the Weathermen made uh, against the United States, how did that happen?
1: By that point, my parents were underground. They were, you know, they'd become fugitives. And they basically, my mom recorded a tape saying that we are now Declaring war, and we're going to start bombing government buildings in America. And they sent this tape to a bunch of newspapers and radio stations around the country. And it was her voice, you know, identifying herself as Bernadine Dorn and saying, within the next 14 days, we're going to attack symbols of American injustice, including government buildings and corporate headquarters. And it was just their very, very dramatic way of saying, we're now at war with our own government, and we're going to resist violently what we see out there. Um, the war and the racial oppression of black people. And we're not just going to sit on the sidelines or protest peacefully. We're actually going to fight violently against these things.
0: What's it like for you when you hear the recording of your mom making that declaration of war?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a strange feeling to um, to listen to your mom at, in her 20s declaring war. You know, this is a woman I know extremely well, obviously, and she's now, uh, you know, just, she just turned 80, actually, So it's funny, on the one hand, to hear her talking about, you know, sex and drugs and violence and declaring war on the government. And at the same time, I know her well, so I feel like I can hear in her voice, you know, she sounds on the tape a a very characteristic mix of defiant and a little nervous, a little sort of reserved and mainly very committed to her cause. I mean, if there's one thing that defines my mother, it's her commitment to what she believes and her willingness to do basically anything to um, fight what she sees as injustice.
0: What kind of family had she grown up in, Zaid?
1: Ironically, she grew up in a very traditional, conservative, patriotic family in, in Wisconsin, a small town in Wisconsin, a mostly white town. Her father was a Jewish immigrant who tried very hard to assimilate. He was a Republican. He voted for Joe McCarthy, a very patriotic guy. He married a Swedish woman, my grandmother. And they really kind of wanted to be just typical all-American people. They sent their daughters to, you know, dance at the American Legion, and they wanted them to do well in school. My mom was a cheerleader and a a straight-A student growing up. So yeah, I would say if you had looked at them when she was a little kid, you never could have imagined that they were raising a future revolutionary or outlaw. She was really an all-American girl.
0: So so what on earth happened to transform this all-American girl to an American revolutionary?
1: Yeah, well, that, that was my big question when I started this whole project. I mean, I've always known her, even as my mom, I've always known her as a revolutionary. So for me, the, the process of going back and doing the research for this podcast, doing the interviews, you know, to think about her as a teenager and then as somebody in her 20s, what had led to this transformation, you know, I really was interested in that question. And the short answer of what happened is that she went away to college. Uh, She ended up at the University of Chicago, which was a very conservative, but very prestigious school in a big American city. And she met a lot of people from different backgrounds. She became very kind of idealistic. She wanted to change the world like a lot of young people want to do. And she ended up at law school at the University of Chicago. And it just so happened that that was when Martin Luther King came to Chicago to um, lead what he called the Chicago Rent Strike, basically trying to organize tenants to resist slumlords in Chicago. My mom ended up volunteering with Dr. King, marching with him on the streets of Chicago. And she saw a lot of you know what we now see in newsreels from the time she saw white people at these marches throwing rocks and bricks at Dr. King. She was at a march in Gage Park in in Chicago when he was hit by a rock and knocked down and was screamed at and spit on by by people. And she really started to feel like, you know, I'm not doing enough as a white person to resist the racism in this country. It seems
0: like such a, I don't know if irony is the right word, but to be radicalized by Martin Luther King, who of course is this proponent of nonviolence, what convinced your mother do you think that violence was going to be the way to get the change she wanted to see in American society?
1: Yeah, well, I would say two things. One is, Martin Luther King, in his way, was a radical. He was a radical thinker, and he really had a radical analysis of what was wrong with America and and believed in truly systemic change, not just uh, modifying things around the margins. So I would say in, in one sense, he led her to be a radical thinker. But then what happened is, of course, he was assassinated and that led to riots and and uprisings all across America. My mom ended up spending a lot of time with the Black Panther Party in Chicago, which was then led by Fred Hampton. Fred Hampton was this very brilliant, very charismatic young black leader of the Panther Party in Illinois. And my mom's organization, SDS, was actually part of Fred's rainbow coalition of activist groups. He was trying to put together an interracial movement for justice and she joined that movement and was good friends with Fred Hampton. And then the Chicago police murdered Fred Hampton in his sleep. And so when he was killed, I think that really drove her and many of her friends over the edge of thinking, you know, it's not a, we we've tried everything else. We've tried to be peaceful. We've tried to be reasonable. And the American government is incorrigibly violent and oppressive. And we have to fight back more radically.
0: Or was it partly that as a white woman she felt an added kind of responsibility to step into the struggle more actively, given that the consequences for black activists were at the time seemed to be so much more serious. Assassinations, murder by police, as you say.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I think she felt that as hard as she was working to be an ally and to be a comrade to these people, they were the ones being targeted with lethal violence by the American government. And she felt like it was not responsible on her part To stand to the side and watch her friends and allies be murdered without escalating her own resistance. And in fact, she and the other weathermen talked very explicitly about their strategy as putting their bodies between Black leaders and the bullets of the police. So it wasn't just about marching with people, it wasn't just about agreeing with them, it was about actually risking your own life in some way to try to take some of the heat away from uh, Black leadership in the country.
0: What about your dad, Zay? Does he have a similar kind of temperament to your mom?
1: <laughs> no, I would say my dad is very different. He's, um, he's a, a more outgoing person. He's kind of uh, sociable and friendly. My mom is, you know, she's, she's fun, but she's reserved and, and serious, and he's kind of playful and, uh, and talkative. And he's a teacher. He was actually my teacher growing up when I was when we were underground and when I was a little kid, he ended up taking a job under a fake name as as a teacher at my preschool. But yeah, he's a, an interesting guy in his own right and had his own path to radicalization. But the two of them are very different in, in, in temperament and in outlook.
0: So once the Weathermen are formed and there's this decision that it's going to take militant action to to create change in the U.S., how did these young adults start training for their new role of armed revolutionaries? I mean, they were college kids. They were on the whole middle class, young people.
1: Yeah, because really how do you, if you're a college student or just recent, you know, grad school dropout and you've decided to become a revolutionary, how do you do that? How do you teach yourself? And I think they they tried a bunch of things, some of them quite funny, some of them quite silly, some of them quite serious. The funny ones are things like they decided, you know, if we want to know how to be revolutionaries, we should watch movies about revolutionaries. And if we want to know how to be outlaws, we should watch movies about outlaws. So they screened films like The Battle of Algiers and Bonnie and Clyde and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Things never end well for the
0: outlaws in those movies, can (laughs) I point out? No,
1: no. It's always a blaze of glory at the end. That's absolutely right. And in fact, yeah, it ended up in some ways coming back to bite them because they did sort of romanticize this idea of the outlaw going out, you know, in a hail of bullets. And and that did end up in in ending quite tragically for some of their friends. But, you know, it was things like that. It was watching movies. It was reading books. It was also training. They would teach each other karate. They would get guns and go out to the desert and do target practice. And ultimately, they taught themselves to build bombs. They got uh, textbooks from dynamite companies and learned how to build circuits and build timers and put together dynamite bombs. So it really it was this kind of DIY, do-it-yourself sort of training where they had to figure out, well, if we're going to try to fight the state, what do we need to know? How do we make fake IDs? How do we get cars? And they really, step by step, taught themselves to be outlaws.
0: What was the days of rage, Zaid, the first action from the weathermen?
1: Yeah, the Days of Rage was this long-planned uh, militant demonstration in Chicago. And the plan was to recruit thousands of young white activists across the country to descend on downtown Chicago, what's called the Magnificent Mile, which is this very fancy shopping district, which is still here in Chicago, which I can see from my window. And, you know, it's the place where all the big department stores are and everything. And the plan was to bring thousands of activists to the streets to show it's not just the Black Panthers, it's not just the Viet Cong in Vietnam, it's white people here in America who are going to resist violently, who are going to show you that we're going to bring the war back into the streets of America and show you what violence looks like here in America. So that was the plan. It turned out that very few people showed up for that. You can imagine that calling on people to join a violent demonstration, it might not be appealing to a bunch of peace activists. So in the end, only a couple of hundred of the most hardcore protesters showed up and they rampaged through the streets of downtown Chicago, breaking windows and smashing things. And they were confronted by hundreds, if not thousands of riot police on the streets of Chicago, and there was basically a three-day brawl or riot on the streets of downtown where many, many people were hurt, many, many people ended up in hospitals, many more were arrested, and that was kind of the beginning of the Weather Underground was this very militant demonstration that came to be known as the Days of Rage.
0: You mentioned that they were learning how to build bombs and starting to build bombs to to arm themselves for this armed revolution. What happened in March 1970?
1: Yeah, basically what happened is that one faction of the group, a, a cell that they had set up in New York City that was kind of operating independently of the rest of the group, decided to build dynamite bombs, and they were working in a workshop that was in the basement of a townhouse in the East Village in New York City, a townhouse belonging to the father of one of the members. She had basically borrowed her father's house telling him she wanted some friends to stay over, just like any young, you know, recent college kids might do. But they were building bombs in the basement. And something went wrong. Nobody knows exactly what. But that morning, March of 1970, the place exploded with a bunch of people inside. And some people were killed, and some people were hurt and escaped. And it was really the beginning of everybody having to go underground, because not only were their friends dead, but suddenly they were on the front page of newspapers all across the country as people who had started building bombs and, and were kind of labeled a terrorist cell and suddenly on the radar of the FBI. So the three
0: people who died in that explosion were all members of, of the Weathermen at that point. Mm-hmm. Yep. As a leader of the organization, did your mum feel responsible for that, for the for the death of those people in that explosion?
1: I think she feels a lot of, a lot of responsibility as the leader of the group because she didn't really know what they were doing. And she feels in retrospect that she should have asked them what they were up to and what the plan was and and what their safety procedures were and what they were trying to do with all this dynamite in the basement. In, In fact, what happened is she didn't ask them what they were doing. She didn't really want to know what the individual cells were doing. Part of the point of the Weather Underground structure was that she, as the leader would not know everything that was going on and that these different groups would act independently. But, yeah, I think in retrospect, I mean, the people who died in the townhouse were very, very close to my parents, including my father's girlfriend at the time. And so, yeah, they look back with a lot of regret and a lot of um, grief about about that time.
0: How did your mum and dad mark that day, the anniversary of that day
1: when you were a kid? Yeah, we always used to go when I was growing up uh, to the townhouse on the anniversary of the explosion and we would put flowers on the stoop uh, of the townhouse. It had been rebuilt by then. My main memory as a kid is that the new owners of the townhouse had put a teddy bear in the window. So I always remember we would go to this house with a teddy bear and put flowers on the stoop. Again, I didn't really know why. It took me a few years to realize we were going to commemorate the death of these people, friends and and, and girlfriends of, of my parents who had died there. So it was always kind of a, a, a bittersweet time for me. Initially a, a place I liked and thought was very beautiful and then only later kind of understood the darkness behind that anniversary.
0: So after this explosion and, and the death of three members of the Weathermen, the group goes underground. How did members go about choosing new names and, and building new identities?
1: They came up with a lot of different strategies. They were college students learning on the, on the fly how to be outlaws. But in terms of ideas, one of the things they would do is they would go to cemeteries. And then they would walk through cemeteries for a long time until they found a gravestone of somebody who had died around the time that they were born. Basically somebody who had died as a child, but who had been born around the same time as they had. So if if it was my dad and he was 27 or whatever, he would look for a gravestone of somebody who had been born about 27 years earlier and had died within a year. So infant death. And then he would go to the local office and ask for the birth certificate of that child. And they would usually give it to them without a fuss because, you know, why would anybody be asking for a birth certificate? And then uh, they would use that birth certificate to create more ID to build driver's licenses and things like that. And you would, if it worked right, you would end up with a set of ID for somebody who was a real person and therefore it was a real ID, but a person who had died many, many years ago and could no longer claim that ID. So you'd have actually official documentation of an identity that wasn't real.
0: And so I guess in the days before electronic and digital identities, it was possible to create a, a new paper trail.
1: Yeah, you're right. There, It was a different era in the sense that most records were in filing cabinets, and so cross-referencing those things was difficult, and the government didn't do a great job of it, so they were able to kind of find the loopholes. Um but you know, I also learned a lot about how some of the things they did are still possible. I mean, we talk, we think a lot now, like, oh, that could never happen. People could never be underground now. But actually, my dad points out in the show, there are many people who are still underground in America. You know, uh, undocumented workers from other countries, people trying to get abortions, people in the criminal underworld who still do these kinds of things, build fake IDs, find safe houses find cars that can't be traced, use phones that can't be traced. So it's kind of, in a way, a, a universal thing that people have tried to do over the, over the years.
0: So there were different groups or different cells of the weather underground across America, I guess, focused in, in New York and San Francisco. How
1: did they stay mm-hmm. in
0: contact with one another, given they were living underground and moving from place to place and using fake identities?
1: It was complicated. They had they used a lot of payphones to make calls. They had complicated schedules where somebody would show up at a payphone and somebody else would know that that was a time that they should try calling them. And it was a lot of trial and error. It often meant waiting at a payphone all night and not getting that call. Uh, but it was a lot of that kind of, of keeping in touch you know, across the country through this network of phone calls. It also meant when they wanted to meet up in person, they had strategies for how to walk a certain trajectory where they could say, you know, walk down this road and take this turn and walk through this tunnel and go through that door, and somebody will watch you so that they're sure that you're not being followed, and then you could meet up in person. So they had a lot of those kind of, you know, simple but effective ways of trying to make sure that they were not being followed and that they wouldn't be caught.
0: How does your mum and dad and other members of, of the underground remember these early years of being underground, Zaid? Again, was there a kind of excitement to it?
1: There was. They really felt, I think, very free in America and very embraced by what at the time was a very large and vibrant counterculture scene, right? So they would go to San Francisco and there'd be all these, you know, hippies and dropouts and rock stars and sports stars who were, part of the counterculture and who would support them with money and with food and with housing and with transportation. And so in some ways, they they felt once they went underground that because the country was really divided in many ways like it is today into two factions, the youthful, diverse, anti-racist, anti-imperialist part of the country was very supportive of them at the time in those early years of being underground. And so it was exciting, and I think they met a lot of interesting people. And they spent that time kind of uh, trying to organize and trying to recruit people and trying to resist what they saw as an out of control authoritarian government.
0: What were the posters there uh, around Haight Ashbury featuring your mum?
1: <laughs> yeah, they used to. There was an independent newspaper that printed a back page that said Bernadine Dorn, welcome here. And this was when my mom was on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list. So J. Edgar Hoover had made it very clear that she was, you know, one of the most wanted fugitives in America, one of the most dangerous criminals in America. And yet many, many people would take this page from this newspaper and put it up in their windows that said, Bernadine Dorn, welcome here. So that when weathermen would drive around and everything, they would see the support for what they were doing in the kind of counterculture community. What about
0: the, the wanted posters from the FBI? What did your mom look like on those, uh, on those more <laughs> official notices about her?
1: Yeah. I still have a bunch of those posters. I have copies that were, you know, hanging in post offices so you can still see the uh, pinpricks from the, the, the pins that they used to put them on the walls um, when she was on the most wanted list. Basically in those posters, you know, it's a big, big banner headline that says wanted by the FBI for riots and conspiracy and assaulting police officers. And then there's a picture of my mom in her sort of trademark black leather jacket and long straight hair, looking very defiant and tough the way she often looks. And it's kind of become a, a, you know, radical chic sort of glamour shot that you see that poster turn up on t-shirts at rock concerts and, and posters and things like that. This is Conversations
0: with Sarah Kanoski. Zaid, your mum was on FBI posters as one of the most wanted fugitives in the US, and she was a hero of the counterculture. But what were the consequences of all this for her family, for her mum and her dad and, and her little sister?
1: It was a uh, very very difficult for her family and I think she still has a lot of guilt about what her parents went through uh when you know when she was underground they never signed up for it and they didn't support the the politics that she was espousing at the time so it was very difficult for them a to explain to their friends what was going on what had happened to their uh, you know adored older daughter but also they were being harassed at the time by police and the FBI who thought that they would be able to lead Them to my mom, so the FBI would do things like they would show up at my grandparents' house in the middle of the night and bang on the door and say, "Uh, "Your daughter's dead. We need you to come and identify her." And they would drive my grandfather to a morgue and show him the body of a Jane Doe who they had in the morgue there, and he would look at her and say, "Oh, that's not my daughter." But they would do this over and over, and you know, each time he'd have to suffer through the possibility that that she was dead. And what they were hoping is that he would get so scared and so worried for her safety that he would help them catch her. Um, that never happened because by that point she had, with a lot of emotional pain and a lot of uh, reluctance, had cut herself off from them and was no longer in touch with them.
0: What about your mum's sister? What were the implications for her?
1: Yeah, my mum's baby sister Jennifer was above ground. She was not a fugitive, but she was sympathetic to the group and she sort of acted as their unofficial spokeswoman. So when the Weather Underground would bomb a building, Jennifer would often deliver their communiques and kind of give a press conference about what they were trying to accomplish. So she was sort of part of the above ground network that supported and helped them. And that meant that she was subject to a lot of harassment um, from law enforcement, even though she hadn't technically broken any laws, they thought that she might be able to lead them to my mom. And actually that resulted in a, a big scandal for the FBI because they broke their own rules and the laws and the Constitution of America violated the Constitution in their efforts to catch her because she had never been convicted or even charged with a crime, and yet they repeatedly broke into her house to search it. They tapped her phone. They bugged her apartment. She found out later that when the head of the FBI in New York retired, they gave him as a, as a retirement present a glass case with a pair of her underwear that they had taken from her apartment in one of their illegal searches. So there was a lot of sort of low-grade harassment and humiliation going on.
0: After the death of, of three Weatherman members in that explosion in 1970, how did that change the way that your mom and other members thought about what their target should be and what role violence should have in the revolution they were hoping to spark in the US?
1: I think it changed everything the the townhouse explosion changed everything for them for one thing these were young people who had previously i think had a sense of invulnerability and immortality the way young people often do i think they felt that they would live forever and so to have three of their friends suddenly killed in this explosion this self-inflicted explosion was deeply traumatic and and really made them reevaluate everything and for my mom what it did politically is it made her think that they had made a big mistake in um, contemplating the use of deadly violence in their, you know, in their revolutionary struggle. So she didn't give up on the revolution. She didn't even give up on violence in the sense that she was still willing to declare war on America and bomb buildings. But after the townhouse, they made it clear they were never going to do anything that would hurt or kill anyone. So. Every one of their bombings, um, they called in warnings. They made sure that the bombs went off at night when no one was there. They had the buildings evacuated. So they were careful not to uh, do anything that would hurt people because I think the townhouse convinced them that that was not the way forward and that, that hurting and killing is not what they were meant to do.
0: And were they successful in that in the years that your mom and dad were leaders of the Weather Underground? Were any civilians killed?
1: Nobody was hurt in weather underground bombings, and and it was very important to my parents, both then and now, to point out that their bombings, they they seem extreme, they are extreme, uh, to bomb the government buildings that they targeted and the corporate headquarters that they targeted. But they see them as symbolic acts, that they were trying to show what violence was being inflicted on Vietnam, what violence was being inflicted on Black people here in America, and to kind of make a, a sort of symbolic echo of that violence through these acts of what they called extreme vandalism. So they never thought of themselves as terrorists or as assassins. They wanted to make a point by blowing up empty buildings that were a symbol of something that they opposed. In
0: 1972, one of the weather underground targets was the Pentagon. How on earth did they get a bomb into the Pentagon?
1: That's one of the craziest things. I mean, I try to get my head around this in the podcast because they bombed the Pentagon, the State Department, The headquarters of the New York City Police and, and the Capitol building in DC. So, some of the most well guarded and secure locations in the country. How they did it? Well, some of it they are still very tight lipped about in terms of their tactics and strategies. But I think one way that they did it is that they were young, white, well educated, middle class kids who could blend in fairly well with the targets that they were. Trying to get into so, for example, a young woman dressed up like a secretary carrying a purse could pretty easily slip into the Pentagon because she looked like every other secretary slipping into the Pentagon and could end up in the woman's bathroom washing her hands and could leave an explosive device there and nobody really gave them a second look, so that so a big part of what made them effective was their ability to um pass unnoticed in the kind of corridors of power in America. In
0: 1975, the war in Vietnam finally ended with the North Vietnamese, not the Americans, claiming victory. Did your parents think, okay, this might be it, this might be the start of the the
1: revolution? I think they felt very celebratory. I think they felt like they had been working for five, six, seven years to end the war in Vietnam. And when it ended, not just ended in the sense of peace declaration, but really with the defeat of the American war machine, I think they felt vindicated and ecstatic. It also meant for them that like, the American government was vulnerable, that there was a possibility of defeating it. So I think in that sense, they were excited. I think it also meant that the big motivating force, the big political thing that everyone in the counterculture agreed upon, every young person in America practically seemed to agree about the need to end the Vietnam War, so when the war ended, for a time, they felt ecstatic, and yet they didn't realise that what it also meant was that there was going to be no more cohesive movement to end the war, and in a way, their movement, the underground, the revolutionary movement, was kind of going to fade away in spite of their best efforts.
0: What did your mum and dad, or not that they were your mum and dad yet, what did Bernadine and Bill decide <laughs> on New Year's Eve in
1: 1976? Yeah. They decided um, to have me and to be a couple. And for them, those two things were, I think, kind of the same thing. They had been in this very freewheeling, free love kind of situation where most Weather Underground members had dated most other Weather Underground members. And there was a sense of we should smash monogamy. We don't want to be like our parents. So there was a lot of kind of free love and people switching from one partner to another or having no partner. My parents had been friends for a long time. But what they decided on that New Year's was, um, we're getting a little bit older, we're in our 30s, we've been underground a long time, and we want to have a family. And so they decided to try to get pregnant, even though, you know, they weren't yet married. And not only were not married, they were still fugitives, still on the run from the FBI. So in retrospect, a kind of a crazy time to decide to have a family, but, but that is what they decided.
0: Well, what was their attitude to being both parents and fugitives or parents and revolutionaries? How did they square that?
1: I think they felt like we've been at this a long time. We know what we're doing. We don't want to not have lives just because we're still underground. We want to do the things normal people do. I think they also looked at their role models, and consistently through my parents' lives, their role models were people in foreign revolutionary movements like Cuba or the Tupamaros in Uruguay or the Viet Cong in Vietnam and domestic revolutionary like the Black Panther Party. And so they looked at those people and they said, well, they're revolutionaries and they also have children, right? Fred Hampton had children and Martin Luther King had children and, you know, the, the, the soldiers in the Vietnamese army had children. So part of what they were thinking was we can do both. We can, we can be parents and we can be revolutionaries. Of course, that had um, tragic consequences for many of them down the road.
0: When Bernadine was pregnant with you, Zaid, what changed in her relationship with the other members of of the Weather Underground?
1: Well, I think there was kind of an interesting, for me, very interesting historical coincidence, which is that as my mom was pregnant with me, as as they were putting together this new life and thinking about this new future, the organization was starting to fall apart. And so, you know, there were these younger, more militant members of the group who kind of decided that my parents and their friends, people who were now in their 30s and had been fugitives for a decade now, were no longer in touch with the radical movement, that they weren't hardcore enough. It's kind of ironic because my mom had always been the one, you know, the, the, the radical leading the most radical faction of these groups and sometimes splitting these organizations to, to become more radical. But in the end, when she had me, when she was pregnant with me, Uh, It was younger radicals saying that she hadn't been sufficiently anti-racist, that she hadn't been sufficiently anti-sexist, that in some way she was, even though she was a female leader, that she had been a kind of a front for the patriarchy. The organization devolved into this kind of infighting, which we might recognize today in terms of kind of a call-out culture where everybody was attacking each other for not being sufficiently pure in their ideology. And they really turned on each other, and eventually my mom was forced to make a confession, and was expelled from the organization while she was pregnant with me.
0: It kind of sounds not just like call-out culture, but almost like a cult.
1: Uh, I think it does have cult-like aspects. And I think what they were drawing from, you know, communist movements abroad, not the Soviet Union so much, but China and Cuba. And they had learned from those places that one of the things revolutionaries had to do was to constantly purify themselves through confession and criticism and self-criticism. And so There was this cultish element where they would criticize each other to try to make themselves more pure as revolutionaries. And that had been an element of the group all along, kind of pushing each other to go further, pushing each other to do more, pushing each other to be more hardcore. And then in the end, that's what tore the organization apart.
0: And these brutal self-criticism sessions that your mother was going through are happening at the same time as she's getting more and more pregnant with you until the day comes that you're (laughs) born. What do you know about your birth? Where were you born?
1: I was born in San Francisco in a safe house that they had rented. We couldn't go to a hospital, so it was all done at home with midwives. They had some friends in the counterculture who were midwives and even a doctor who could be on call. And so they had this kind of home birth Without telling anybody, luckily went okay, and uh, and so I was born in uh, April of 1977 uh, while they were still underground.
0: Do you have any photos of your mom when she was pregnant or or when you were a baby?
1: I do. Yeah, I have uh, you know a whole photo album. She there, were, there are no photographs from of them underground before I was born because they had been very you know determined not to be in front of the cameras, but they wanted to document her pregnancy and my birth and, and my childhood. So I have some pictures from that time. And um, she looks, um, you know, she looks very pregnant and very uh, beautiful and, and kind of young and also looks sad. You can tell that there's something bothering her and that I now know after doing all this research and kind of going back into that time that it was an impossibly difficult time for her, and that even as she was excited to be a new mom, the revolution and the organization that she had founded was falling apart around her.
0: And as that organization was falling apart and she and your dad become new parents, they're kind of, I guess, although underground, they're suddenly having to engage with ordinary life in a different way. Was it kind of a novelty for them?
1: I think in some ways it was. I mean... On the one hand, all along, they had had to have jobs, rent apartments. I mean, normal life goes on, right? So my dad had worked on the shipyards, and he had been a mechanic, and my mom had been a secretary and a waitress. They did all these jobs that you know didn't require a lot of ID and that could pay in cash. So they were partly funding their revolutionary activities just by being normal people, by having normal lives. But I think having a kid really just accelerated that process of, having to rejoin society. So they needed to find friends for me and other parents who they could spend time with and then ultimately find a school where I could go. So yeah, slowly but surely, he ended up as a teacher. My mom ended up as a waitress. And by the early 80s, they were no longer doing much in the way of being professional revolutionaries. They were mostly focused on being parents, raising a family, and, you know, had kind of been underground long enough to think that nobody was really looking for them anymore.
0: So after all those years underground and kind of making a life for themselves, having kids, what prompted your parents to to turn themselves into the police?
1: Well, I think two things, a political thing and then a family thing. Um, The political thing is that the FBI had gotten in a lot of trouble for the tactics they had used trying to catch my parents and other radical groups. This is what came to be known as the COINTELPRO scandal the FBI had, had been caught violating the Constitution in their surveillance of these left-wing groups. And because of that misconduct, the courts threw out a lot of the evidence against my parents. So many of the charges against them by that point, by 1980, had been dropped. And they were still wanted. My mom still had charges against her in Chicago, stemming from the days of rage, protest, charges of riot and conspiracy and assaulting a police officer. But the big charges for their bombing campaign had been dropped because of the FBI's misconduct. And so on the one hand, they were, they were facing a, a changed situation where they actually, they might go to prison, but they were no longer facing life in prison because of so many of the, the charges have been dropped. So that was the political reason. The personal or family reason was that my younger brother Malik was born. They suddenly had two kids and I was five years old and I was ready to start kindergarten and we had no ID, no birth certificates, no stable housing or places of employment. So they were really trying to think, how can we raise our child unless we make some kind of accommodation and, um, and resurface in some way?
0: And then what deal was offered to your mom through her lawyer?
1: Yeah, they made a deal with Chicago prosecutors. As I said, the federal charges have been dropped. So they made a deal in Chicago that if she turned herself in, she would get Primarily probation and wouldn't have to serve a lot of time in prison. And the only uh, hang up of the deal was that we were living in New York at the time. And to get this deal with Chicago prosecutors, we had to get to Chicago and turn ourselves in in Chicago. Unfortunately, at the time, the FBI and the police knew that this deal was in the making and they knew that we were headed to Chicago. So we had this one very stressful road trip from New York to Chicago.
0: What would have happened if you'd been stopped, your mom arrested on the on that drive from New York to Chicago?
1: The deal was off and, and she would have probably spent decades in prison. So it really was a, an all or nothing proposition. If we got to Chicago, we had this deal in place. If we were caught on the way, there was no deal. And one of the craziest parts of the story is that I was five years old at the time and we were driving in a very tense situation. My dad was very careful to keep the car below the speed limit. And we pulled over at a rest stop to get some food and gas. And my dad and I were waiting in line at Burger King. And I was, you know, five-year-old kid. I had hair down to my shoulders, looked like a girl at the time. And this older couple started talking to me. And they were just kind of chatting with the cute kid. And they said, "Uh, where are you headed? And I said, we're going to Chicago. And they said, oh, what's in Chicago? And I said, we're going to the FBI to turn ourselves into the police and change our names. And (laughs) They got very wide-eyed, and my dad said, oh, I don't know what he's talking about, and picked me up and ran back to the car. Luckily, I didn't screw the whole thing up. We did make it to Chicago, and uh, they turned themselves in. But, yeah, it was a close call.
0: And what happened when when your mom turned herself in? I mean, was she repentant? Was she apologetic?
1: No, she was very herself. She said, um, I'm turning myself in because being a fugitive no longer serves any purpose, but I remain committed to the struggle and committed to the cause. There was a big media circus about it. I think in a lot of ways, people couldn't believe like by 1980, the idea that this fugitive from 1969 had suddenly appeared was a very strange uh, idea. You know, anchor people at the time saying, you know, the Bernadine Dorn of 1916, she sounded a lot like the Bernadine Dorn of 1969, even though here we are in 1980, felt like a a time traveler had suddenly appeared, you know, uh, very out of place and out of time by that point. And what was her sentence? She got probation and my dad got probation and they did not at that point serve time in jail. So we ended up going back to New York and resuming our lives. And for a time, it didn't last that long, but for a moment, it really seemed like um, they had gotten out and made it back into society and that we were going to be able to go on with our lives.
0: How did your neighbors and and school friends react to you this revelation that your parents had actually been fugitives on the run from a radical underground political movement?
1: I think they were very surprised. I think a lot of them couldn't believe that this kind of famous fugitive had been in their midst and had just been a mom at the at the daycare and a waitress at the local diner. But, you know, they 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 came to an accommodation about it. My parents had a meeting with all the parents at our daycare. They apologized. They explained what had been going on and why they weren't able to tell people who they really were. And for the most part, people forgave us and let us back into our lives. And and kind of, my mom says, it cracked me up when I was interviewing her, but she actually went back to the, the restaurant where she worked as a waitress thinking, you know, maybe they'll spit in my face. And they were thrilled because she was suddenly famous and on the front page of the New York Times. And they wanted to hire her back as a waitress so that they could get more business.
0: <laughs> so your mother avoided jail in relation to the, the charges that were had been brought against her from her years with the weathermen, but she was then sent to jail for refusing to testify against uh, another ex weatherman Susan Rosenberg. How long was she in prison, Zaid?
1: She was locked up for about a year and a half. What was it
0: like visiting her, you and your dad and your little brother, when she was in jail?
1: It was very difficult. Um, My little brother was a baby; he was still nursing when she was locked up. I was a a little kid, and I, I, you know, would have to go through the metal detectors and get searched and everything. I made a habit of smuggling little books into the visiting room so that I could, you know, have her read to me. I think I also liked the idea of being an outlaw with her and uh, breaking the rules with her. But you know, it was difficult. My dad was raising us on his own, uh, single parenting, and she was very unhappy to have left her kids at home and to be in a way forced to make this choice between standing up for what she thought were her principles or sacrificing her children. And, and, and that was a very difficult time for her and for our family. What was
0: the Christmas gift she made for you while she was in prison?
1: Yeah, I found this thing she had made me, um, as I was working on the project and it's a calendar that she made out of, um, construction paper and yarn kind of in a prison art class or something. And she had clearly worked on it a lot. I really liked it as a kid. I hung it above my bed. Um, you know, it had the boxes for all the days of the weeks and 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 pictures. And <laughs> I went back over it and, you know, there's there's no Christmas. There's no Hanukkah. My birthday is blank. All the things you'd expect as holidays are not there. But every month has dozens of holidays marked and they're all The assassination of Martin Luther King, the assassination of Fred Hampton, the assassination of Sitting Bull, you know, various kind of commemorative markings of revolutionaries who had been killed by the government or by vigilante, you know, white supremacists. And so it's kind of very, very telling, I think, very typical of her in a way that I was a five-year-old kid and what she thought to send me from prison was a calendar marking revolutionary anniversaries.
0: What kind of life did your family live after she was released from prison?
1: We went back to having a kind of a normal life. It's it's kind of an amazing thing that after all that, we could somehow reintegrate into society. But my dad, who had found his calling as a teacher, went back to graduate school and got his PhD in education. My mom, who had dropped out of law school to become a revolutionary, went back, finished, took the bar exam and became a lawyer. We moved to Chicago, and in a way, my adolescence was quite normal. My dad was a professor. My mom was a lawyer. They became very active in in kind of progressive politics in Chicago. You know, they they stayed activists. My mom worked her whole adult life uh, in juvenile justice reform. My dad worked in school reform trying to improve the public schools. So they were still trying to change the world, but in a much more normal and peaceful way.
0: And did you ever rebel, Zaid, and like become a young Republican or something?
1: (laughs) I didn't. No, I I think. I mean, it's funny. I I know there's that that stereotype from the 1980s of like the family ties, you know, the hippie parents give birth to a kid who ends up becoming a stockbroker and a Republican. But that has not been my experience, either for me or for the other children of weathermen and and Black Panthers that I know. Most of us have, I wouldn't say we're violent revolutionaries, but I would say most of us in some way are working to change things you know I'm a writer of course I know people who are social workers and lawyers and activists and run organizations and are poets but all of them in some way I think see themselves as as following in their parents footsteps maybe trying to do things differently maybe do things better but still committed to uh, working towards a, a better and more just world.
0: As a a little kid, you reflect that you kind of looked at your parents as heroes, a bit like the Robin Hoods or the Luke Skywalkers. How do you think about Mm. them now and and about those years they spent in that kind of activity?
1: I see them as complicated, flawed human beings like all of us, but I do think that, and I think they made mistakes, but I also come to have a lot of admiration for what they stood for. You know, it's very rare, and you think about our situation now in America and what we, what people have finally seen about police violence against Black people, about systemic racism in this country. And I think the fact that a few white people, including my parents, saw that 50 years ago and were willing to put their own lives on the line to change things, I do admire that part of it.
0: It is an absolutely fascinating story and a window into uh, an extraordinary time in American history. Thank you so much for, for being my guest on Conversations.
1: Thanks, Sarah. It was really fun to talk to you.
0: You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.